Conservation with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi there and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, we are looking at the ways in which artificial intelligence can support wildlife conservation efforts. With deforestation, poaching and climate change, conservation efforts are crucial to protect our forests, fish and wildlife. Milin Tambe, Professor of Computer Science and Industrial and Systems Engineering at the University of Southern California and his team have decided to face the challenge head-on and use advances in AI, computer vision and other technologies to support wildlife conservation. Two of their big conservation projects are focused on preventing poaching. One uses drones equipped with infrared cameras in combination with an AI system called SPOT to detect poachers in the dark. And the other project analyzes past poaching data to predict where poachers might set their traps, allowing rangers to find traps more easily and remove them before they can do any harm. Our interviewer, Lauren Klein, spoke to Professor Thambe about his wildlife conservation work, about how AI can support conservation efforts, and why fieldwork is crucial. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Hello. Uh Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Can I have you introduce yourself, please? Yes, um, I'm Milin Tambe. I'm a professor of computer science here at University of Southern California, and I co-direct a center for artificial intelligence in society at USC. Awesome. And as I understand it, one of your big projects is helping to prevent poaching. So we have um, at Case this uh, Center for AI in Society, three Mm -hmm. areas on which we have focused our research. Wildlife conservation is one big area for us. Right. Uh, And second is um, public health and social work, and third is public safety. With respect to conservation, you are exactly right Mm -hmm. that uh, preventing poaching is definitely one of the big projects that we have focused on. And there are two... Uh, separate projects that we have been using for countering poaching. One of them is using drones in order to detect poachers at night. And so our collaborators, for example, an NGO uh, that that works in this space, has um, drones that fly in South Africa and, and then we, or other parts of Africa, and they send out images videos that are sent to a van whereby human beings are observing these infrared videos late at night to try to detect poachers. And what we've built using uh, exploiting the advances, recent advances in computer vision, is a technique to spot these poachers at night by automatically detecting them and this way reduce the burden on human beings to keep looking at these videos late at night and try to detect poachers and animals in these grainy infrared videos. Right, so you use the infrared video and then use computer vision techniques to kind of make faster and perhaps more accurate 
the the predictions of where poachers are. So in the past, you essentially there's a human being who's uh, looking at these infrared videos late at night and trying to figure out if there's a poacher in the video. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult for a human being because you know they are looking at hours and hours of video and suddenly right. there might be a poacher. It's very grainy video. And it's even though it's infrared with the idea that you could spot a human being more easily, there's a lot of other heat in the background and so forth. And so therefore it's mm-hmm. hard to detect a human being. So uh, my PhD student, Elizabeth Bondi, has been working on this project. And what she's done is built a system called SPOT, which uses convolutional neural networks. And it automatically then detects poachers and essentially raises an alarm for a human being to then say, okay, I see a poacher in this video, let me now call a ranger in order to try to intercept the poacher. Wow, okay. So that's that's one of the projects uh, called SPOT. Mm-hmm. The other project that um, we've been working on is this Protection Assistant for Wildlife Security, or PAWS. Mm-hmm. PAWS has been um, in construction, uh, we've been building it for the past five years. The focus of PAWS is to predict where poachers may set snares based on past poaching data, and then for the and then send patrollers out to try to interdict poachers and snares and remove snares and so on. Mm-hmm. A concrete example is work we did in Uganda with Uganda Wildlife Authority and Wildlife Conservation Society. And in two national parks, Queen Elizabeth National Park and Murchison Falls National Park, using past poaching data from several years, uh, we are able to predict where poachers set snares and show that uh, we are able to remove snares from areas that they had very infrequently patrolled before and also predict where they may be high risk versus low risk areas. Wow, okay. And this we've done in tests that have gone on for several months Mm -hmm. and are able to show that our techniques are effective in discriminating high and low risk areas. So in the tests that you say that have gone on for several months, you guys are deploying this in the real world, right? It goes far beyond simulation. You that guys is have right. deployed that is this right. in multiple so, areas. Uh, indeed, indeed, that's a very good point. So initial results on machine learning were focused on doing things in the lab. So we were mm-hmm. able to show that, okay, in the lab, our uh, machine learning approach worked better than other standard machine learning approaches. Right. But these were not uh, convincing to our collaborators uh, in Uganda Wildlife Authority okay. and its Wildlife Conservation Society. They really wanted to see tests on the ground. And so in the first test we did, we selected two areas, nine square kilometers each, which had been infrequently patrolled, where there weren't any snares had been found in the past. We mm-hmm. intentionally selected these areas, so essentially to show that we aren't asking you to go back to the areas where you found snares in the past, but to completely new areas, you haven't found snares there in the past, go there and now you try and find snares. And so this was a one month long test and so patrollers went out there in those areas that we had recommended and they were initially able to find, you know, initially there was nothing, but then they found one poached elephant with its tusk cut off. So we were able to guide them to the right location, although clearly too late to save this one elephant. But mm-hmm. then immediately thereafter, the next day, they found a whole elephant snare roll. So the system was able to guide our rangers to areas where poachers were active. 
where they had killed elephants, but before they could kill the next set of elephants, we had been able to remove a large number of wow. snares and therefore potentially save lives of elephants. More recently, we have taken this test to Cambodia, uh, working with World Wildlife Fund, and again we are able to predict snaring and are able to show that with our approach, there's at least a five-fold increase in the numbers of snares captured, and also that we are able to accurately predict high versus low areas of snaring. Mm -hmm. And so these snares or traps are really, I mean, if you see them, they're extremely difficult to even imagine what they are doing to the animals, because apparently they are created in order to break the bones in, in these animals' legs. So you can imagine uh, this is really, really terrible. And yeah. to be able to remove large number of snares, uh, we hope that helps save wildlife. And so this is uh, with the success in Cambodia, with what we've seen in Uganda. Now we are working with Smart Partnership, which is this um, collaboration of World Wildlife Fund, Wildlife Conservation Society and others. This partnership builds software for national parks around the globe, hundreds of national parks around the globe. Mm -hmm. And so we are integrating our predictive models, uh, this PAUSE system that I mentioned, with their smart software so that our software will be available to national parks around the globe in order to make predictions about poaching risks and where to remove traps and snares. And so this is work uh, that we're very excited by. We're hopeful will be of value to dangers around the world. That's great. And a lot of the algorithms that you guys are using to do this involve game theory. Is that correct? That is right. So game theory is this approach of uh, essentially reasoning about strategic interactions between two players. Of course, it's got a lot of history. Mm -hmm. We have come up with a particular model called Stackelberg Security Games. This is a model for defending a set of targets against an adversary. Okay, where in this case the targets would be the animals or the areas that are being patrolled and the adversaries would be the poachers? That is correct. And so this model uh, originally got built for public safety and security, for urban settings, for protecting ports and airports. So that's mm-hmm. something we developed uh, earlier include and started uh, this work earlier in uh, 2007, building this model called Armour for the LAX airport to generate patrols in at the airport. Essentially, all these problems where you have limited security resources and large number of targets to protect how to schedule or plan or allocate your resources taking into account a watchful adversary. So Stackelberg Security Games is this model that allows us to randomize allocation of our limited resources taking into account that some targets are more important and need to be more frequently patrolled mm-hmm. and some are less. And so it's creating this intelligent randomization. And so that's the model that then got used by the air marshals, by the Coast Guard to generate patrols in different ports in the United right. States. And so that's the, that model then is the one that we're migrating over to help protect wildlife. The difference is that when we're talking about protecting wildlife from poachers, we are discussing these 
adversaries, multiple of them, who are not necessarily as strategic as might be in a counter-terrorism setting. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, there is data available from their past poaching activities, which we can harness in order to make predictions about where they may strike next. Right. And that's what we've been doing for the past several years. And how do you obtain that data? So this is uh, is a collaboration with the SMART partnerships. So SMART has the software that they have been deploying in parks around the world, which automatically collects data on where rangers are patrolling, what kind, and the rangers can then note down where they found traps or snares, or where they found illegal activities or animal parts or what have you, mm-hmm. on the basis of which we can make inferences. So that data has been made available to us. And so that's what we are using in order to make predictions about where poachers may strike next. And so availability of data is clearly crucial. And we are very Mm -hmm. fortunate that uh, this uh, smart partnership has been working with us. So there's some interesting uh, things here because um, we do have many years of data, but it turns out that if you use all of it, you may end up confusing your model. So you may need to curtail the amount of data that you actually use in order to make predictions. Right. So in addition to this data collection process and in addition to collaborating with the rangers and finding rangers to collaborate with, can you tell me some of the challenges associated with deploying these types of algorithms in the real world? So key reason, one of the key points is to be sure that we are not going to sit in our labs uh, in our ivory towers, so to speak, mm-hmm. and make recommendations to staff on the ground that what we've come up with is the right approach. And often going into the fields and really immersing ourselves in the field and understanding real domain challenges helps us improve our work provides us new research challenges so as a re- as researcher it's important to do that but also make sure that we provide solutions that are actually useful so i'll give you a concrete example so we were working with a wildlife conservation agency in malaysia and we were providing them patrol routes and so we had made predictions on where they would find snares and then patrol routes were showing, you know, midpoint to midpoint, shortest path routes that we could calculate most effectively, and we would send them those routes. And this, you know, so we would be doing all these calculations at USC with our fancy algorithms, Mm -hmm. send them over to Malaysia, and say, please go ahead and execute them. And they would come back and say, well, this is not working. And so we were very confused, you know, point seemed to be that they're saying that the traveling from midpoint of one grid cell to another grid cell on our map was Mm -hmm. not the shortest route. So you can imagine our confusion that the shortest distance between two points appeared not to be a straight line. Right. It's not necessarily the bird's eye view distance that you would see. That's right. And so once, so we decided to go to Malaysia and patrol uh, with the rangers. And once we patrolled, then we understood that, like you're saying, you know, if you just go in a straight line mm-hmm. in the forest it seems naively sitting in uh, you know in our lab at uh, USC that why can't you just walk in a straight line but there are you know the, the, there's a hill so they really have to climb down they have to climb up and it's uh, 
consumes a lot of energy to have to get right, people. Right, the terrain to, right, changes changes the fastest uh, so path. That's right, and there are trees mm-hmm. on the way, and so it's a. So you have to really take into account the terrain, the forest, you know, the density of uh, having to pass through these very complicated uh, terrain features and so on. And so if you walk along ridge lines, along river streams along areas where human beings wouldn't have to spend as much energy, then that's the right way to patrol. That's also the paths that animals take. That's also the routes that the poachers, poachers take. Yeah. And so it all makes sense to be walking along those energy-saving right. routes rather than just going in straight lines. And this is the kind of thing where I felt, uh, you know, they could have said all this uh, to us mm-hmm. in phone calls or Skype calls or what have you, but we wouldn't we would have been confused as so to why can't they just go from point A to point B? Right. Going into the field really helped us. So that's one of the the challenges is to really be able to immerse ourselves in the field and make sure that we truly understand the constraints in the domain and field test our system, get them to use it. And then really, uh, if that's successful, that's when you can really understand the system is good. So unlike other work, perhaps, um, which is not geared towards these um, real-world deployments, really immersing ourselves in the domain, testing things in the field, these are important these are very important things to do when we are working with these real-world applications. Of course. Can you tell me a little bit about validation as well and how you how you measure the success that these algorithms have? So it's obviously uh, very important. So there's initial tests where we can do simple tests to just say, well, can the patrollers, for example, follow the patrol routes or not, like I mentioned mm-hmm. just now? Or, uh, you know, can you find new things? traps in new areas you haven't patrolled before. That's a good test. But to really do an extensive test to val- you know, to really validate the model, you really have to do large-scale tests. And so some of the things we did is to send patrollers out on a six-month patrol where we had selected dozens of areas in two national parks in Uganda, rated them by risk, low, medium, or high, in terms mm-hmm. of probability that snares would be found and not reveal this information to the rangers and then ask them to patrol these areas for months and months, six months, and then come back and report to us what they found. And at the end of the six-month period, we are able to indeed show that where we predicted more traps would be found, indeed more traps were found. Where we predicted less traps right. would be found, in, indeed less traps were found. Very cool. So you found that the areas you predicted were the same as the places where the rangers found more snares or more traps. That's right. And so this six-month run that we did, a six-month test that we did, was really trying to validate our models are accurate. And these kinds of tests are being repeated. Indeed, it is my belief that we have to continuously stress test these models in the Mm -hmm. field. Right. with the real collaborators to continually try to improve them. And that's what uh, we've been doing in Cambodia, for example. Uh, because every park brings up new challenges. Uh, people mm-hmm. have newer, con- newer constraints. Uh, they may be walking on the foot 
you know, the foot patrols in Uganda, but the motorcycle patrols in Cambodia. Right. There may be other kinds of patrols. So each park brings up newer uh, challenges. So the models have to keep evolving or you keep building multiple models, each suitable for different... And how, how do the models tend to evolve from situation to situation where the constraints might be so different? Because I know you still use game theory for a variety of situations. And of course, there are multiple ways to use game theory for these types of situations. So how... How do you discover which areas of the model need to be changed? And, and it's exactly this um, immersion in the domain. It's mm-hmm. exactly this field testing that keeps showing us how to get the model to evolve. I'll give an example from, a, from earlier work, not in the domain of uh, wildlife conservation, but uh, public safety and security. Mm-hmm. So we had been doing patrols in... Uh, other urban areas, protecting ports, generating patrols for police and so forth, where to set up checkpoints around the airport, things of that nature. So we similarly created patrols to have the LA Sheriff's Department do patrols on trains in Los Angeles in order to catch people traveling without tickets, fare evaders. Mm-hmm. So we created these patrols. In the lab, they looked fantastic. We even wrote a nice paper about it. It was well received. And it basically said, well, uh, you know, get down at this train station, then take the next train, check people for fares, then get down at this other station, and then check. So highly optimized where to, which train to catch. It had the timetables of the trains, when you would get down. It accommodated sort of mm-hmm. time to switch So very trains. specific. Very nice, very optimized, everything. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, we sent our students out to patrol with the LA Sheriff's Department uh, officers. And what we would find is that after, you know, about half of the patrol was over, the patrol would be interrupted. So when all the, from the students coming back, I would see that, this, you know, we had done all this optimization. Almost every patrol, but at most executed to about half of its mm-hmm. intended patrol length and then abandoned. Some, and, and it was a bit mysterious. Why is why are all these patrols getting, you know, stopped halfway? Then it turned out because there are continuous interruptions. Sometimes uh, there's an unruly passenger. Sometimes somebody who doesn't uh, have a valid ticket. Somebody who's, uh, you know, had ma- made these, uh, you know, not bought a ticket twice or thrice. At such points, the police have to potentially arrest the person or they have to stop this uh, person from being unruly. And so we realized that these patrols were being somehow not well executed, always executed about half their intended length. We discovered that this was because of people being arrested or other kinds of interruptions. And this meant that we needed to evolve the model to accommodate the fact that there are interruptions that happen. And this led to a whole new theory of how to build game models where uh, you know the strategies for the defenders are far more complicated they're interruptible mm-hmm. um, the, a joke was that um, one of the students came by saying well one of the officers said that uh, he wanted to go to the restroom right and and, <laughs> uh, and because that happened now the you know 
patrol got interrupted. The train was optimized to leave at 9.50, you know, to leave on the train at 9.15. Mm-hmm. Now, they couldn't leave on the train at 9.15, so they had to stop the patrol because of the officers having to, you know, officer going to the restroom. So we said we are the first research group to accommodate restroom breaks <laughs> in the game theoretic model. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are real-world, uh, you know, real-world constraints, uh, real-world concerns. And unless we really go out there, field test them, it is difficult to validate the models. And the evolution of the models comes from essentially going out in the field, testing them, mm-hmm. whether it's in the forest in Malaysia or patrolling with our officers on trains in Los Angeles or going on patrols with the U.S. Coast Guard in their port, in their boats in the port of New York or other ports. That's the way we've found out what the limitations are. And, of course, this is um, you know, extremely satisfying to actually go out there and work with these uh, front workers, uh, you know, people who are on the front lines, and just to s- appreciate how hard they work at these jobs and be thankful mm-hmm. for all the work that they do. Um, rangers in forests, I mean, we were just in Cambodia last you know, week, and it's such a hard life and they're really putting their lives on the line the poachers are shooting at them uh, and you know still they're patrolling these very very hard places I mean I lived only I stayed there only for like a couple days in the camp and it it is it is not easy and uh, for them to be so dedicated I mean we're hopefully building something that would be some value to them but I certainly appreciate how hard they work at building uh, and how, I mean, and thankful to them that they are out there trying to save wildlife from extinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. Um, is there anything else you'd like to, to, to tell our listeners? No, thank you. I guess uh, thank you for inviting me. And um, uh, if uh, people are interested then certainly we uh, work at our center using AI for societal benefit. So check out our website, casecais.usc.edu, to find the work uh, that we do. And if it's interesting, drop us a note. Great. Thank you very much, Professor Tambe. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. As always, there's plenty more episodes on robohub.org forward slash podcast. And if that's not enough, check out our featured articles on robohub.org for even more robot-related news and views. And finally, a reminder that you can support the RoboHub podcast by becoming a patron so that we can continue to bring you the latest news and views from the world of robotics. You can give as much or as little as you like. A few dollars a month, the cost of a cup of coffee, can make a huge difference to us. You can find out more about our patron campaign at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Conservation with RoboHub the podcast for news and views on robotics.